Thank you for listening to the Alliance Church Podcast. We desire to connect you with God and one another, whether here in Wisconsin or around the world. Let's listen into this week's message. Peter Drucker, who is a leadership expert, told an audience of managers once, he explained the difference between management and leadership. Difference between management and leadership. And he said this, difference between management and leadership is that management is all about doing things right. Leadership is about doing the right things. Management, doing things right. Leadership, doing the right things. In church, very often we are, we are concerned about management. We want to do things right. And that's because God is a God of order. We should want to do things right. The Bible speaks a lot about this. It, the Bible speaks a lot about management and stewardship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40, it says this, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. God is a God of order. He expects his church to operate in an orderly way. God's people need to do things right. No question about it. However, it is my conviction that while the church focuses a lot on doing things right, occasionally we fail to do the right things. We get what I call off mission. We get off mission. Now, I have my opinions as to why this is so. First of all, it seems very natural for people to focus on short-term gain and satisfaction. That's the kind of world we live in. It's all about what I can experience and feel now. Most of the people that come to this church have needs and problems in their life, and they want this church to meet those needs. That's completely understandable. But the truth is, the top priorities that God has in mind for the church may not be focused on short-term needs. God intends his church to focus on the world's needs and take the gospel to places we'll probably never go, to people we'll probably never meet. There's another reason why the church might not do the right things, and it's because the church is always being asked to join a cause of some sort. Human needs are unlimited, and you can find a thousand causes for the church to focus on, from racial reconciliation to ending poverty to social justice to political conservatism to morality issues, you name it, there's a cause that the church is being screamed at to make the main thing. So the church is always being pursued by lots of groups to focus on solving some sort of, of a usual current issue that society is facing. Now, while all of those issues may be important to address, I want to suggest to you today, they still may not be the major priorities of God. And when the church 
focuses its limited resources and vision on those issues, we may not be doing the right things. I want to remind everybody the church is not a democracy. It's not structured for the people to set the agenda for God. The church is not an organization with stockholders. We're not stockholders. The church is not a publicly owned company. The church belongs to God. And all that you are and all that I am and all that we have belongs to him. And God calls every one of us as believers to be keenly aware and keenly sensitive to his purposes, his priorities for the church in the world. So that's the purpose of this message today. I want to outline for you from the book of Titus, from the letter of Paul to young Titus, I want to outline to you four right, excuse me, three right things that the church should prioritize. Because the owner, God, expects us to do the right things. Here's the first one. First priority, church planting, church planting. Now, if you've ever been part of an Alliance church, you know that, that Christ's last command to his disciples is our first concern, priority number one. It's called the Great Commission. Here it is, Matthew chapter 28. Therefore, Jesus speaking, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. What is God's number one concern for the world? God's number one concern for the world is that we make followers, disciples of all people in every nation and that we baptize them and teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. That's our marching orders. That's the big picture vision. It's called the Great Commission. He commissioned us to do that. So it begs the question, how do you do it? How do you make disciples of all nations? Well, Paul would say it starts with planting churches in every place. And to do that, you first got to identify some leaders, some church leaders. Everything begins with leadership. Titus chapter 1, verse 4. The reason I left you in Crete, he tells Titus, was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul is telling young Titus, I left you on the island of Crete to appoint elders, qualified church leaders in every town. The Greek word that's used there is presbyteros. We get the word Presbyterian, presbyteros. There are two words, Greek words, that are used for the same office there of elder. And one is presbyteros, which means elder. It, it, it means uh, someone who is senior, someone who's experienced, mature. And then the other Greek word is episkopos. Have you heard that before? It's my name. Somebody way back when must have been a bishop. That's how it's translated in English a lot. Bishop or elder. And episkopos is more that you break it up, right? 
Epi is over. Skopas, handsome. Over, <laughs> overly handsome. No. Uh, epi, over. Skopos, to see. Overseer. So episkopos is really talking about the function to oversee. Presbyteros is, is the elder, the senior, the experienced person. So a church, Paul is saying, needs to be planted. But first, you got to start with finding some spiritual qualified leaders who could make disciples and teach people everything Jesus commanded. Now, here at Appleton Alliance, we, we have made it a policy from day one. We do not start a ministry until we have a qualified leader. We think that that is biblical, that you start with leadership. God wants his church planted in every town and nation. That's pretty clear. But you first got to find a qualified leader. So church planting needs to be a priority. It's the right thing to do. I remember when, when uh, I was here for about four or five years, and one of the things I instituted was we, had, we were supporting missionaries around the world, which is what we do. I mean, it's amazing. This church gave uh, last year over almost a million dollars to world evangelization. It's amazing what, this, what you do and are part of here. But we had a system that did not, we, we really didn't know what our missionaries were doing. And I don't know of any organization that doesn't have accountability uh, if you resource something. So we told our missionaries around the world, when you come back, we're going to ask you what, what has been the fruit of your efforts. It's not that we're just looking at numbers here. We, and some of these places are very difficult places for the gospel, but we said, we want you to send us each year three ministry goals. We want you to send, tell us the strategy you're going to use to accomplish those goals so that we can pray for you. And, and what are you looking to accomplish? And I, we got so much pushback from these missionaries who came, you know, crying, saying, you don't understand how hard it is. We understand how hard it is. We're paying you, though, $2,000 a month to do that ministry, and like everybody else, including us, including myself, I'm accountable. Where's the fruit? What are you doing? Tell us your strategies for no other reason than to pray for you. And I remember one missionary came back from Germany, and she said, uh, we're having a Bible, studies in the, uh, Bible studies in the library or meeting people. Okay, is the, is the church going to be planted there? Well, there's really no strategy right now to plant the church, but, but we're, we're meeting people, getting to know people, sharing gospel here or there. Now, that's okay. It's okay for our workers to go out and meet friends and be in the gym and share the gospel with a few people, but that is not the priority of God for the church. The priority of the right thing to do for the church is to plant the church in every place around the globe, and you begin with leaders. So you have elders. Now, I can just, I know I'm going to get emails from this message today. People are going to say, Pastor, you have no idea. We're in a limited access country. We, it's hard to plant the church there. And there may be some places around the world where the visible church may be almost impossible to be. But you can plant the church in those places. You think Titus 
was excused from this in Crete. Let me tell you what Crete was like. Look what, well, look what uh, Paul says about Crete. One of Crete's own prophets have said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And this saying is true. One of the concerns, one of the uh, common words for liars at that time in the first century was the same word for Crete. So in Crete, so it was kind of a synonymous. Crete, liar. You want to call somebody a liar? You say you're a Cretan. He always lies. It's like, you know, you want to call somebody a loser? A bear fan. I mean, it was the same kind of deal. Boy, I'm going to get in trouble for that one for sure. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that every Cretan was a liar, but it does, tells, it does tell us that lying was an accepted value in Crete. In fact, Cretans' most famous falsehood was they believed the god Zeus was buried on their island, which is ridiculous because Zeus was immortal, claimed to be immortal. The text also says that they were evil beasts in their sensual passions and appetites. They were lazy. They didn't want to work. They just wanted to party all the time and feast. Folks, that's not an easy place to plant a church. And yet that's exactly what Paul tells them. Plant churches there. Find some leaders, appoint some elders, and plant the church in that city. Second right thing to do. Paul describes for Titus is he, he wants him to make sure once the church is planted there that believers live out a Christian culture. Chapter 2. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-control, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled and everything set them an example by doing what's good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try and please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about our God our God and Savior, attractive. For the grace of God has appeared to offer salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle towards everyone. What is Paul telling Titus? He's telling Titus, if this island is going to be evangelized with the gospel, these people are going to have to see with their own eyes what that looks like in everyday life. The Christians there 
have got to be a group of people living out this truth. People got to see it lived out. A Christian culture. So we list for them very clearly what a Christian community should look like. People are submissive to the government and the authorities. They're known for their love. They slander no one. They respect people as all people as created by God. They're considerate. They're gentle. Older women are mentoring younger women on how to be godly wives and moms. Older men are mentoring young men to be disciplined, to be careful in the way they speak, to do what's right. Christian employees are to be respectful of their bosses and not be disrespectful, but to show how, how, how they can be fully trusted. Christians ought not to be enslaved by passions and sensuality. Paul's trying to tell Titus this. Look, on this island that's known for lying, we, the church, needs to be known for speaking the truth and loving and encouraging and living godly, upright lives as we wait for Christ to return. We're kingdom people, Titus. We're, we're, we're kingdom people, God's kingdom on earth. And the way this congregation lives is going to be a powerful witness to the watching world that this gospel works. We love each other, how we care for each other. So that when you're asked, Titus, what this born-again thing is all about, you tell them, come and see. Come and see. Come to this place. And you'll see it lived out. It's happening in our congregation. Every community in the world needs a church which validates the gospel message. People need to see a Christ-like culture lived out among God's people. So Paul tells Titus, that's a priority. That's the right thing to do. Third, major on the gospel message. Major on the gospel message. Let me, let me get back to the big picture again, the Great Commission. The big picture is that God wants this gospel message to all people. Now, if you're a strategic person, you're thinking at least three things. First of all, if I'm to get the gospel to every, let's call them people group, Right? They have their own language, their own culture. If I got to get this gospel to all people groups around the world, number one, how many people groups have already been reached with the gospel and how many have not? That's first question. You got to take inventory on that. Secondly, what's going to be the strategy or game plan to reach those unreached people groups with the gospel so the church can be planted there? Third, what's my role? What is our role as a local church in that overall strategy? People today, uh, I mean, the groups today that, that work these types of strategies have definitions for an unreached people group. An unreached people group is a group of people who, because of their language and culture, cannot be reached with the message of the gospel unless 
somebody from the outside comes in, number one, learns their language, number two, translates the Bible into their language so they can understand the truth and hear about Christ, and thirdly, a viable witness or church can be planted among them. There's, place, there's lots of groups where they have one or two Christians. The tipping point is 2%. If they, they, they believe it's 2%. If there's 2% or more Christians, then the gospel is beginning to be planted. If it's less than 2%, it's an unreached people group. And, and they believe that once the church is planted there, a church that is loving and believing, the witness of the gospel now can spread within that group or that region. In 1974, Billy Graham's Lausanne Conference of World Evangelism, uh, Ralph Winter, a man by the name of Ralph Winter, really um, changed the game on the global missions movement. It was kind of a watershed moment because prior to that, the strategy was always to look at individual countries, but now he said, no, we need to study the people groups because a country can have multiple people groups within the country. And we have to get the gospel to all people. So Ralph Winters began to study these unreached people groups. And at that time, he determined there were 16,000 unreached people groups in the world. Since then, a lot more research, of course, has been done, and a lot of evangelism and mission work has been done. And according to the Joshua Project, which is kind of a group that, that studies this all the time, the Joshua Project, there are approximately, right now, currently, 7,400 people groups still unreached. In other words, there are 7,400 groups of people that have little or no access to hearing about Jesus Christ. By the way, those 7,400 unreached people groups, they make up about 40% of the world's population. So you're talking about a significant amount of people. And it's even more interesting is if you were to take 100% of all the world's missionary efforts that are out there by all the different denominations, 100% of the missionaries that are out there, only 10% of those missionaries are focused on those unreached people groups. So because I'm a visionary and kind of I like to build a strategy for it, I, I began to do some calculations. And just in the U.S., in the U.S. today, there's about 400,000 churches, round number, all kinds of churches. 25% of that 400,000 are evangelical. What's an evangelical church? The Bible is the only source of revelation. No council of bishops or anything is revelation. And they determine this is Truth, no, the Bible, if it's not in the Bible, we don't believe it. Secondly, salvation is by faith alone, not works, nothing else, faith in Christ and what he did at that cross. Third, you need to be born again, just like Jesus said, you need to be converted by believing and surrendering. There needs to be Christian conversion of the heart and mind. That's the basic terms for an evangelical church. So there are 25% of those 400,000, that's 100,000 evangelical churches in the United States. And it doesn't take a math genius to figure out that there are then 14 evangelical churches for every unreached people group. 
So if somehow we were to take these evangelical churches and band them together and say, let's get the job done, 14 churches just in the United States. We're not talking about believing churches around the world, just in the United States. 14 churches, you take a people group. Folks, we're talking about something doable. It could be done in our lifetime. It could if we focused. It's not a, it's not a wild dream. We're talking about the main mission of God's agenda accomplished in our lifetime. But it needs to be a priority. Can't get sidetracked by other issues. It needs to be the right thing to do. A people group, to reach a people group. Let me tell you what that entails. It entails, first of all, you got to pray that God is going to raise up some people, maybe from this church, to go to that place. It's never been reached before by missionaries. Secondly, you're going to finance it. Third, you're going to commit to consistently praying for these people. I believe this is one of the keys of what God wants in our generations. That's why last thing I did, last thing I did before I passed the baton to Brian in January was part of our global vision, working with Mark Byram, our missions pastor. We made it clear to the Alliance that we want to commit this church to adopting one of the 7,400 unreached people groups. We can do that. And, and Pastor Mark and Pastor Brian, they are on it right now. We're, we're getting our plans together. But we can do this. The question, of course, is whether the entire evangelical church, not just in the United States, but in the world, can put their personal agendas aside to reach 7,400 unreached people groups with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that Christ returns. He said, I'm not going to return until this gospel is preached to everyone. It is the right thing to do to stay on mission. You get this gospel message to the ends of the earth. And what's the gospel message? This is where Titus ends his little epistle, Paul's epistle to Titus, and he outlines it in chapter 3. At one time, we too were foolish. We too were disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth, of being born again, and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generally through, generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. That's it. That's the gospel message. It says God saved us, not because of righteous things we have done. You ask the average person today, 
not just in America, but around the world. Why would a holy God let you into his heaven? Answer, by 90% of the people, because I'm a good person. Because I'm religious. Because I was baptized and confirmed. I did these religious things, the religious good works. See what I've done? That's why he should let me in. Paul is saying very clearly, Jesus saves us not by righteous things we've done, but we're justified by grace. That word means free. We do nothing for it. Jesus saves us because of his mercy. He has compassion on us. It's free. He does the work. He goes to the cross and pays for all of our sins. Why did Jesus come? To save you. How are you saved? By his grace and mercy. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you openly, openly, you have to openly, you have to publicly, you have to come public with it. You have to go to God with it. If you openly declare Jesus as what? Lord, that means he controls your life. He's number one. You surrender everything to him. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and then believe in your heart, he died and was raised from the dead for you, you will be saved. Paul is telling Titus, preach that over and over and over and get it to every town around the world. It's the right thing to do. Maybe you're here today and maybe, maybe today you didn't come to hear a missions message, but it's the first time you've ever heard that message that Jesus came to save you, not by your works, not by your religious pedigree. It doesn't matter what label you have, Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, Protestant, Alliance, it doesn't matter. All of those good works do not matter. They all fall short. To be forgiven, to be saved, to get your ticket into heaven, you need to trust not in yourself, but what Jesus has already done for you. He paid the price for past, present, even future sins you haven't committed, all in one act, forgiven. And he, asks, he, he calls you to stop justifying yourself before God, but simply by faith, open arms, receiving by faith what he's done for you. And then secondly, declaring him as Lord. You, you need to surrender your life to him. It's a simple prayer, but it's profound to say, Lord, I've been running my life up to this point. No more. You call the shots in my life. You take control of my life. Have you done that? If you do that, Paul says you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. God, the third person of the Trinity, will actually come and indwell you and live inside of you and ch begin to change you, not into some weird spiritual person, but a sane, godly, good person, person you, you always wanted to be, but you never could because you were in control. But now Christ living in you, he kind of changes you little by little by little into somebody you never thought, wow, it's him. He does it. That's what being born again is. He makes you into a new person. And this may be your moment to do this, to do this kind of business with God. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Let's all, let's, let's stand. Let's stand and let's bow our heads. Don't worry about the person next to you, who you came with. This is just between you and God right now. And to say, Lord, 
pray, you pray silently, but say it to him. Just say, Lord, I hear this preacher talking this, and I feel like I'm the only one in the room. I feel like I'm the only one here. This is my moment. This is the moment I'm supposed to respond to the offer. Lord, please take my life. Make me into the kind of person you want me to be. I'm going to trust you from now on. I don't know exactly all that that means. I don't know what all I have to do, and I'm not, I'm not going to try and figure it out. I'm just going to take it a day at a time, but I, I want to be your man. I want to be your woman. I want to be your son or daughter of the living God, and I pray, God, that you'll reveal yourself to me Surround me with people who can point me in the right direction. From, from now on, I belong to you and you alone. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you now with everything good, for doing his will, and may he work in you what is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God's people said, amen.